Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It has been an unusual week. We had a memorial service on Wednesday, one on Friday, and two on Saturday. As you might imagine, I spent a great deal of time this week thinking about the four people being remembered, the meaning and witness of their lives, the impact that they had on their friends, their families, the community, this church, on me. I knew that I was scheduled to preach this Sunday. I've been preaching sermons with one-word titles, and I decided to preach on a passage from Philippians and call it Eulogy. I have a one-track mind. Listen to what Paul wrote and listen for how he takes assessment of his own life and witness. And of course, listen for the Word of God. To write the same things to you is not troublesome to me, and for you it is a safeguard. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh, For it is we who are the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, even though I, too, have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet, whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. David Brooks has undergone a transformation. He became famous as a conservative columnist for the New York Times. His voice was mostly a secular one. 
But for more than a decade now, his writings have become more and more faith-based. He's not ordained, he does not have a seminary degree, and for most of his early life, he was either nominally religious or agnostic. But at the midpoint of his life, he made a major pivot. He began to explore his Jewish heritage, and it led him to explore the Jewish faith. And then his life took another turn. He became fascinated with Christian theology. And a day came that if you asked him if he was a Jew or a Christian, he didn't know how to answer that except to say, both. What caused him to turn to faith is probably complicated, more than he could even explain, but I know at least what he said in his writings. A devastating divorce led him to seek the comfort and guidance of the Jewish faith. And then a second marriage to a devout Christian led him to explore her faith for her sake, only to find that he was pulled in by the gospel news that God was in Christ for his sake and the world's. Now, as a good columnist, Brooks' inner life works its way into his writings, his columns, articles, books, and lectures, and speeches. But more and more, he began to speak to topics such as virtues, character, and ethics from a faith perspective. Judging by the remarkable sale of his books and his demand as a speaker, Brooks is filling a void for people of faith who want to avoid the strident fundamentalism of the right and the strident social activism of the left in considering what it means to live as a flawed people who have given up on trying to be perfect, to live moral and good lives. Many of the ministers I hang with see Brooks becoming that public theologian that people look to for spiritual guidance, regardless of their political affiliation or theology or ideology, the role that people like Billy Graham and Reinhold Niebuhr and Henry Ward Beecher used to fill. In April of 2015, Brooks wrote a column for the New York Times that later was incorporated into his book, The Second Mountain, one of the books I read on my last sabbatical. The column was called The Moral Bucket List. Brooks began the column by saying that occasionally he comes across someone who just seems to him deeply good. They're not trying to be that way, but there's something about the way that they listen to you or, or the way that they look after someone else's needs or, or how their manner seems so kind. And on the one hand, when he meets that kind of person, it just makes his day. But on the other hand, at the same time, he feels some regret. It makes him want to achieve that same generosity of spirit or depth of character. In thinking about how he might become more like them, it occurred to him that there are two sets of virtues. There are resume virtues and there are eulogy virtues and he has spent most of his life pursuing the former and neglecting the latter. The resume virtues are about those outward accomplishments that impress, that get you noticed, that get you in, that open doors and influence others. And these accomplishments are not unimportant. I mean, we have to make a place for ourselves in this world, and to get things accomplished at work or in the community, you need to be 
credentialed. You need to be respected. You need to have some clout, some leverage. And in fact, we're in a season right now of celebrating resume virtues. It was not that long ago when most of this year's high school seniors submitted applications to colleges where they listed their grade point average and their participation in social activities and their participation in community service. Or if they're not going to college next year, they might already have put together a resume to help get them a job. And these resumes, they're important. I'm quite pleased that our church has been a help in building some of them. I am delighted that mission trips and mission service here in Roanoke, that participation in our youth program and an Eagle project or two here at the church has been included in what our youth have wanted colleges or potential employers to see. And of course, it doesn't stop with a college application or a first job resume. These resume virtues are accumulated through the years and they're shown in formal ways, such as what you might see on LinkedIn or in just the things that people say about people, what gets around in the community. You know, she owns the business. He's an accomplished artist. He once was a starting guard for UVA. She chairs the board of a nonprofit. He has a two handicap. She can play the guitar. He can really cook. She can fix anything. I mean, it's nice to have things like that spread around about you. It's good to have a reputation in the community. But Brooks says that we can spend too much of our life adding to the list of resume virtues and neglect building the virtues of the inner life. That's what Paul speaks to in our passage. You can hear him list his own resume virtues in what he wrote. He gives himself a good recommendation as an observant Jew. He is circumcised. He can trace his family all the way back to Abraham because he's descended from Abraham's son, Benjamin. He lives up to the moral standards of being a Jew, and he has done the study to be looked up to as a good Pharisee. And he's been so zealous for his faith that he has become a persecutor of those Jews who were following Jesus. Now, in our time and context in Roanoke, Virginia, or wherever you might be in this worship service, we may not be impressed by this resume, but if you really knew how hard it was to be respected as an observant Jew and learned Pharisee, you would be impressed. But Paul then goes on to say that all these outer virtues now mean nothing to him anymore because they're about what he could do, but now his life is completely about what Christ has done for him as a sinner, saving him by grace. Now, I think that there is hyperbole here. I mean, I don't think that Paul's theology is hyperbolic, but in terms of what is practical in living in this world, he might be overstating a bit. I mean, at first, Achievements and honors can actually reflect internal character and virtue. And second, you just don't get into a college, get a job, or get access to funding by writing a letter saying, I'm nothing. I'm just a sinner saved by the grace of God. But it's true. We've seen it. Sometimes the development of inner virtue suffers as one tries to be impressive in the world. 
Becoming somebody in other people's eyes can become such an obsession that too little time is, is spent becoming the kind of person who doesn't need to feed off of other people's approval or admiration. Years can pass living for external achievement and validation while the deepest parts of you go unexplored and unstructured. I just returned to David Brooks by quoting him. Brooks built up a tremendous resume. He accomplished a lot for which I think he rightly should feel proud. Still, it is important to him to let you know that gradually over the years, he allowed this gap to develop between his actual self and his desired self, between himself and being one of those incandescent souls. And to illustrate what he means, Brooks thought back to all those memorial services for people who he thought was genuinely good, who shined that light of goodness. Now, some of those people that he remembered, they had impressive resumes, but some did not. But their achievements or their lack of achievements is not what was said about them by those who spoke, the rabbi or the priest or the friend or the family member. They did not moisten eyes talking about what was owned or or ran, or how much was made, or how much stuff accumulated. The truest things that were said, the things that were important enough to be said at those memorial services, was always about the kind of person that, that who, who he or she was, what kind of friend he was, what kind of parent she was, what kind of sibling, what kind of role model, what kind of parent or grandparent, neighbor. He would hear about the acts of kindness, the good examples that they set, the sacrifices they made for the people and causes that matter to them. And there was always, in his memory, always some selflessness involved. And it was in the selflessness that their best selves shined. You know, since I made the decision to preach this sermon called Eulogy early in the week, it was easy for me to spend the rest of the week listening for examples of what Brooks is talking about. In the conversations that I had with families preparing for memorial services, those four memorial services that we had this week, I heard the stories about what meant most to loved ones. And it was always personal memories that revealed something that was essential about the one that they lost, despite what other things could be said for good or ill about the one who had died. One was the owner of a chain of stores. His son's friend wanted to talk about how he learned to ski by being held between that man's knees. One was Miss Everything in high school. Her son talked about how he learned from her that the point of excelling is to serve and that it's more important to affirm others than to seek praise yourself. One was a respected attorney. Her husband and son wanted to talk about her fierce loyalty to them and how they knew that her deepest desire was that that they be okay in life. And one was a widely known dentist. His family spent most of their time with me telling the stories he told on himself so that others could relax and laugh and enjoy themselves. 
They were speaking of the kind of things that would be hard to list on a resume, the kind of things you wouldn't find on college applications or, or letters to get a job, but, but they all hint at what Brooks was talking about. In his best moments, he now cares more about what his children are going to say about him than what his eventual obituary in the New York Times will say. He wants the kind of things said of him that is said of mothers who truly show selfless and sacrificial love to their children. Early in his faith journey, Brooks wrote a book called The Road to Character. In it, he told of flawed people who were of great character. And in writing that book, his aim was to offer illustrations so that we can learn from them and so that we can then build up our eulogy virtues. But now he believes that that book was naive. He was trying to make goodness yet another accomplishment, something else that you can put on your resume. He is now more in league with the Apostle Paul in saying that at the end of the day, eulogy virtues come as gifts. And often they come with our being broken, defeated, humbled. Those who genuinely reflect goodness have been molded by life experiences, and he believes by God, even if not all of them believe it, molded to realize that we can never become as good as we hope, but we can surrender so as to reflect the goodness that is given to us. It comes of finding that one is loved by others despite your flaws and failures, and then having that love pull you toward wanting to be worthy of it. Paul's way of putting it is to say that he failed in his attempts to become good on his own, but now he is more than happy to share the news about how he has come to know the forgiving and saving power of the resurrection. With humility, we can realize that what is ultimately good and wonderful in this world is about God, not about us. If we know that God can work something good, even in our flawed hearts and lives, then maybe we can find real purpose simply in seeking to reflect God's goodness for others and for their sake. Whatever we do, it'll be flawed. But maybe when we selflessly live so good can come to others, we'll be able to share something far more valuable than what can be found in a resume. The love of God. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.